In three minutes, we're going to be sharing in the two-minute silence, which will be recognized across the country. We are hopefully going to allow you, if you wanted to, to join in the silence on your doorstep, just to explain what's going to be happening. In a moment, I will read a short poem. We will then hear the last post played on the trumpet live outside the King Center. And then we will share, we will stand in your homes, on your doorsteps, wherever you are, and we will share in the two-minute silence, at the end of which you will hear the trumpet again. And then Paul and Jane will come forward and take the wreath and lay it at the memorial just outside the King Center. Let me just pray. Please join me as I pray. Lord, we thank you for this chance to remember. We thank you for all those that have been, were involved in conflicts, and who sacrificed everything so that we could stand here right now. Lord, we remember those who are fallen. And thank you that as Christians, we have a great hope. Thank you that this morning we can remember the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died as a sacrifice for us, but that he rose victoriously. Lord, we want to thank you for that great act of sacrifice. Please be with all those facing conflicts right now. Please draw close to them today, we pray. We ask this in your name. Amen. I'm going to read a few famous words of a short poem, and then the trumpet will sound the last post. So wherever you are, why don't you stand now in preparation for our silence. They shall not grow old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them.
Remember them. We're going to sing a song now that reminds us of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us and also reminds us that there is the hope of glory to come. There is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O my Father, Forgiving us your son and leaving your spirit to the work on earth is done. Jesus, my
We're going to come to our Bible reading in a moment. We're carrying on our series in the book of Acts, and Matt Palmer is going to come and preach to us from Acts chapter 8. The words are not on the screen today, so it'd be really helpful if you had a Bible in front of you and you can follow the reading. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8 and reading from verses 1 through to 25. As you find that in your Bibles, let me just pray. Lord, as we come to your word, as we come to hear your voice speaking to us now, please be with Matt as he opens up the Bible, as he opens up this passage. Please help him, Lord. And please help us as we listen. Speak to us, I pray, in your name. Amen. So we're going to read from Acts chapter 8 and reading from verses 1 to 25. A little bit of context for you. Stephen has just been killed. And in chapter 8, verse 1, it starts with, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with streaks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart 
is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Brilliant. Thanks, John, for reading. Do keep Acts in front of you uh, if you can. And some of the uh, key verses will be on the screen for us as well. So you'll be able to follow along uh, quite easily this morning. And we've just been remembering, haven't we? Remembrance Day is a day uh, when we look back, look into the past as we have been doing already this morning. We look back and we remember those who have given their lives in service of their country. And as we look back, I think it's fair to say that history is marked by particular events, particular moments that change everything. Some of those moments, uh, lots of us now need to read about in history books. Uh, The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, or the D-Day landings. Uh, Other events, moments we can remember well the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers, the outbreak of coronavirus. History is marked by events that change everything. And that's what we've been seeing in the book of Acts. If you've been with us this term, you'll know that Acts is a book all about change. In part one of the story in Luke's gospel, Jesus, a humble preacher from an insignificant town, makes this astonishing claim that he is God on earth. He says that he's come as the Lord and Saviour of all humanity. And the people must therefore repent, they must turn from their rebellion against God and trust in Jesus as the way to forgiveness and eternal life. It's a massive claim, a claim that changes everything and a claim that lands Jesus in a lot of trouble. In fact, it's this claim that means that in the end, Jesus is put to death, crucified as a common criminal, buried in a borrowed tomb. But the story of Jesus doesn't end there. Because three days later, Jesus is back. He's alive and well, and he's seen by hundreds of people. Jesus is alive, and that changes everything. It means that everything he said, everything he taught, everything he claimed, is true. And so he gathers his followers to himself, and he tells them they must go, they must spread the word. He tells them to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Jesus is alive. And so forgiveness and life can be found in him. And that's where the book of Acts begins. Jesus returns to his Father in heaven 
And the disciples, well, they go and spread the word. And again, the change is dramatic. We've seen it, haven't we? People go from lame to leaping, from fear to faith, from cowardice to courage. All because of this risen Lord Jesus, the King, who through his Spirit changes people from the inside out. Acts is a book about change. And we can see that again as we come to Acts chapter 8 this morning. In Acts chapter 8, we see how the gospel continues to bring dramatic change in the most unlikely of places. And so the first thing I want us to think about today is the transforming power of the gospel. The transforming power of the gospel. If you were with us last week, we ended with the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian to be killed for speaking about Jesus. Uh, Stephen is killed, and then in 8 verse 1, we read, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. A person, persecution breaks out, and in verse 3, we see it's led by a man called Saul. We're going to hear more about Saul in a few weeks' time, but here we see he's determined to destroy the church. And the result is the believers are scattered. They're forced to leave their homes, their jobs, their families, their friends, all because they've chosen to follow Jesus. The church is scattered, but then in verse 4 we see it doesn't have the effect Saul intended. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Just as we keep seeing in Acts, the gospel is unstoppable. And so in God's sovereignty, the, the attempt to stamp out the church only causes its message to spread even further. It's through the persecution of the church that the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem into a new place with new people. One of the people who takes that message is a man called Philip. Just like Stephen, Philip was one of the seven chosen to serve the widows back in chapter 7. And here in verse 5, we see that just like Stephen, Philip is determined to preach the gospel wherever he goes. Luke says in verse 5 that Philip proclaimed the Messiah in Samaria. And in verse 6, we see that his proclamation comes with power. Just look at verse 6 with me. When the crowds heard Philip and saw that he, uh, the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Just like the apostles before him, God works powerfully through Philip to heal the sick, to cast out demons. And he does it so that people will be drawn to, to hear the message, drawn to hear Philip speak about Jesus, the Messiah. The people are drawn by the miracles and they pay close attention to the message. And the result is there in verse 8. There was great joy in that city. It's a wonderful description of the, the effect, the impact of the gospel, isn't it? As people are healed and Christ is proclaimed, there is great joy. But the gospel 
isn't the only power at work in this Sumerian city. You saw that as we read it. Verse 9, now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. There's another power in Samaria and it comes from this man, Simon. He seems to have some sort of ability, some sort of power to do things which amaze people. But it's not actually the the power of magic tricks that Luke wants us to notice about Simon, is it? If you look at verses 9 to 11, you can see that the true power Simon has is the power over the people. It's the power of influence. Verse 9 says that he amazed all the people of Samaria, everyone in the region, was in awe of him. Verse 10, both high and low gave him their attention. Verse 11, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time. And so you can see Simon, he holds great power over the people. They even declare him the great power of God. They give him their attention. They focus on him. He is the center of their lives. And it's into that context that Philip comes and preaches the gospel. And the same is true today, isn't it? Society, both individually and collectively, puts things at the centre. We all have things that we pay careful attention to, things that we focus on. We all have things that we're amazed by or in awe of, things that in some sense have power over us. For some of us, those things will be spiritual things. We might not follow Simon the sorcerer, but we are taken up with spiritual things. Things like Buddhism or Taoism, general spirituality are more and more popular in Western society. For some it's spiritual, for others it's very much material. Money, success, relationships, security, reputation. Spiritual or material, it it doesn't really matter. The point is that we all live for something. We all build our lives and focus on something. And those things, whatever they are, they have power over us. They influence our, our decisions and our desires. They affect our actions and our aspirations. For the people in Acts 8, Simon was that power. That was until Philip arrived with the gospel. Look at verse 12. But when, that's the people, believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Philip arrives in the city and he proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The ultimate power. And the result is that people's lives are completely changed. He says that they they hear that message, they believe it, and they are baptized. They're baptized as a, a visible picture, a symbol of the change that God has brought about in their lives. You see, baptism is a picture, a symbol of complete washing, cleansing that Jesus brings. Uh, Through his death and resurrection, as we trust in him, we are cleansed of all of our filth and muck and sin. 
It's a picture of complete cleansing. It's a picture of a new allegiance. We're baptised into Jesus' name. We now belong to him. Our allegiance is to him. He is now the centre. He is now the focus of our lives. And so baptism is this, this outward picture of an inward reality. The reality that believing in Jesus has changed us completely. Uh, the total transformation that the gospel brings. Uh, one person said it's the difference between a house extension and a complete rebuild. Uh, becoming a Christian is not just a case of adding a Jesus room to your already existing house. He's not one more thing to, to live for, one more thing to go alongside all the other things that vie for our attention. No, believing in Jesus is like a complete reconstruction. It's less home edit and more extreme makeover. As we come to Jesus, our, our old life is completely done away with. It's dead, it's gone. And we're born again, says Jesus. We're rebuilt with Jesus as the foundation of every single room. And so now Jesus is the centre of my family life. Jesus is the centre of my work life, my, my relationships, my finances, my hobbies, my desires, my aspirations. They're all about Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be transformed by the gospel. A deep change that affects every aspect of our lives. And that change, it, it's so deep and so broad that, that it's not a change that we can bring about by ourselves. In fact, left to ourselves, we, we're consistently drawn back to our old life. Drawn back to those, those old rooms that we find so hard to get rid of. And it's that drawing back that we, we see going on in the second half of our passage. We've seen the, the transforming power of the gospel. Now we see the seductive power of sin. In verse 13, it seems that, that Simon, along with everybody else, has been changed by the gospel. He believes, he's baptised, and rather than people following him and being amazed by him, he, he now follows and is amazed by Philip. Simon seems to have been changed. But then it quickly becomes clear that the change is not that deep. In verses 14 to 17, if you look there, we read about this strange event where there seems to be a delay in the Samaritan believers receiving the Holy Spirit. It's strange because the normal pattern of Acts that we've seen is that people receive the Spirit the moment they become a Christian, the moment they believe in Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter tells the crowd, repent, believe in Jesus, be baptised, and as a result, you will receive forgiveness and the Spirit. And then later on, in chapter 10, a man called Cornelius believes in Jesus, receives the Spirit, and is then baptised. And so the repeated idea in Acts is that the Spirit comes to those as they put their faith in Jesus. So why is there a delay here in chapter 8? What's going on here? 
Well, I think this is another of those unique events in Acts. They're becoming familiar now, aren't they? An event that, becomes, uh, that comes at a, a particular moment in the life of the church. Remember what's going on. The gospel has just moved beyond Jerusalem for the first time. It's spread to a, a new place with a new group of people. And they're not just any old people. It's spread to the Samaritans. These are a people deeply despised by the Jews. The religious and ethnic divisions between Jews and Samaritans goes way back into the Old Testament. And the hatred between them is deep, it's severe. But the gospel is unstoppable. It spreads despite opposition and it spreads despite division. And so as these bitter enemies of the Jews hear the gospel, uh, they come to believe in Jesus. They come to believe in a Jewish Messiah who claims to be the saviour of the world. Which means this is a hugely significant moment in the life of the church. It's significant and so the apostles come in verse 14 to check it out. And in verse 15, we see that, that God delays the giving of the Spirit until they get there. And he does so to visibly confirm that the Samaritans are the real deal. They've believed the same gospel. They've received the same Spirit. And so they're part of the same church. It is an important and unique moment for the unity of the new church. But it's not actually what Luke, the author, focuses on in the passage. Because having described this unique event, his focus moves back to this guy, Simon. You see, Simon, he's, he's watching all that happens. He sees the apostles giving the Spirit as they lay their hands on the people. And he wants in on that action. Just look at verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. Simon sees what's going on and he's attracted by the power the apostles have. And straight away we can see, can't we, his his old way of life, his old way of thinking, rearing its ugly head again. Simon, the great power of God, a man who used to have influence over all the people in Samaria, sees an opportunity for power. And he wants it. He grasps at it. And just like his old way of life, his old pagan way of thinking, he thinks money can buy it. Simon might have been changed, but, but the change doesn't go very deep. And so Peter says in verse 20, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You've no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. You're still thinking in your old ways, Simon, says Peter. You still think that influence, that power, that even God can be bought with a bit of cash. Simon, there are still areas of your heart that are not right before God. 
It's still rooms in your house that are left unchanged. And so, verse 22, you need to repent. You need to turn from your old wickedness and you need to come to Jesus. You need to come to the one who can offer you forgiveness. Verse 23, you need to come to the one who can get rid of the bitterness that is in your heart. The one who can set you free from captivity to sin. You need to come to Jesus. You see, Simon, he might have been changed by the gospel, but he was still seduced by sin. Still tempted to go back to his old way of thinking, his old sinful patterns and habits. And so Simon needed to repent. And we know that same experience, don't we? We know that despite the fact we've believed in Jesus, despite the fact we've received the Holy Spirit and so been radically changed by the gospel, we're still tempted to go back to our old way of life. And that's because although our salvation is completely secure in Christ, sin is still active in our hearts. People often say that it's like the difference between D-Day and V-Day. On D-Day, the Allies won a decisive victory. The enemy was defeated, victory was won. But the battle wasn't over. They still had a fight on their hands. Yes, the enemy were defeated, but they were still dangerous. And so it wasn't until VE Day that their weapons could finally be laid down, that the fighting could stop. And the same is true in the Christian life. That at the cross, Jesus won a decisive victory in laying down his life as a sacrifice and rising again, he defeated sin and death. And so all that trust in him could be freed from the penalty of sin, forgiven completely. The victory is won, but the battle isn't over. We're free from the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin is still a reality in our lives which means we still have a fight on our hands. How do we engage in that fight? What will the battle look like this week? Well, first, it'll mean examining our own hearts. It'll mean asking ourselves some honest questions. Questions like, are there areas of my life that are still captive to sin? Are there rooms that I'm unwilling to change? Are there ways in which I think I can buy God's favour? Not through bags of cash, but perhaps through my behaviour. What things am I, am I tempted to elevate above Jesus? To give my focus, my attention to, more than I do to him? To examine our hearts before God. And then verse 22, we need to repent. Daily, we need to turn from our old sinful way of life and keep coming back to Jesus. Keep coming back to the one who has already paid the price so that we can receive the gift of God, forgiveness at the cross, the Holy Spirit living in us. 
They keep coming back to the one who has the power, the true power that can change us from the inside out. We need to examine our hearts. We need to repent and turn back to Jesus. And then finally, we need to long for V Day. You see, the great hope, the, the great promise of the gospel is that one day Christ will return. One day the victory will be complete. And on that day, the power and the presence of sin will be no more. The fighting will stop. The fighting that we experience externally is we have conflict with communities and countries and the people around us. And the fighting we experience internally as we continue to battle against the sin that is still present in our lives. One day all that will end. All the things that we live our lives for and build our lives on will fade into the background as we see Christ, the victor, face to face. The day will come and we will rest in the love and the life that Christ has won for us for all eternity if we trust in him. And it's knowing that and keeping that day in view that will help us to keep fighting today. Let's pray together. Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Christ has won. Father, thank you that he has defeated the power of sin and death and that he will one day return and his victory will be realized fully and finally. Father, we long for that day, the day when Christ returns and sin and sickness and suffering are no more and that we can rejoice with him for all eternity. Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ and we ask that by your spirit you would help us to live wholeheartedly for him this week. And it's for his glory we pray. Amen.